Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Quinn Ross, who the Canadian Lawyer Magazine named as one of the top 25 most influential lawyers for 2022 in the changemaker category. Congratulations, Quinn. Thank you very much. And welcome to the XL Legal Podcast. Thanks, Shelley. It's awesome to be here. Well, thanks so much for being here. How about getting us started by introducing yourself? Sure. I'll, I'll try to sort of keep it relevant to what we're talking about today. I am the managing lawyer of a small, hopefully soon to be mid-sized law firm throughout Southwestern Ontario and the shores of Lake Huron. We've got six offices in that region, and there's about 70 of us uh, full-time human beings working at the practice of law. Um, I'm also a bencher of the Law Society of Ontario, and in my capacity there, I sit as the chair of the Futures Committee. Um, where I get to sit with uh, other like-minded people and opine about the blue sky that is the practice of the law in the future. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> in in preparing for our discussion, doing some research about you and all the wonderful things that you've been doing and things that led to um, the Canadian Law Magazine's award, I kept coming across statements sort of like this. With the twin goals of innovation and humanizing the practice of law, Quinn Ross is passionate about doing things differently. So my first question is, what's driving your passion to do things differently? I think when I was a younger person and not necessarily aware of my value, although it's something I still struggle with today, which I think is not unusual in our profession, I would have said it was laziness that drove me. (laughs) And now I think it is uh, efficiency and, and finding things that people are passionate about and giving them the opportunity to do it. So more more substantively and less philosophically, I I am driven to get rid of those things that take from our well and find those things that add to our well so that when we spend the hours we do uh, toiling at the job that we do, which is not an easy job, is is an inherently stressful job, that we bring out and and support the best of people and mitigate and and protect against the inherent weaknesses that each of us have in our own unique personalities. And mm-hmm. I try to do that with systems and technology. So there's the innovation sort of side of the um, of the quote or statement I just mentioned. What about humanizing the practice of law? What does that mean to you? It means that we have to approach what we do differently than we've always done it. And, and, and my thesis is the way we've always done it is in a model of scarcity. So there, there is a competitive marketplace, both internally and externally in law firms and in professional services firms generally. Um, and as such, there is a limited pie and we all scramble over how much the pie we get, either how much work attribution do we get? How much billable hours do we get? How much money do we make? Uh, how do we, claw our way up the ladder, et cetera. And, and we have refused that system as one that treats humans as grist for the mill and really is designed uh, to benefit the very top of that structure at the cost of all those along the way. And we've done that by saying we must apply as much resource, support, and compassion to those people who we work with as possible 
because when we do so, we have happier, healthier, more engaged and more productive people who want to stay with us longer. So not only is it a humanization from the purely altruistic perspective, but it is just good business. The problem is that it's a 180 degree turn from the way things have traditionally been done and are largely done today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So can you maybe give us some examples of some of the things that um, you are doing to help sort of humanize, as you say, the the practice of law and the way you're yeah. doing things differently? I'll sort of do it temporarily because it was it was a it was an exploration that was not necessarily initially overly intentional. It was organic. We were smaller and we were just trying to figure out uh, how to do things. So it really began with interactions with staff, lawyers, allied professionals, etc., that were designed to understand why certain benchmarks weren't being achieved, why they weren't hitting KPIs, key, key productivities or key production indicators, performance indicators, or, or why they were struggling in their job generally. And and the model that we've all seen is that you you sort of go in and you say, you aren't achieving X, Y, and Z. You have to achieve X, Y, and Z. We're going to put a plan in place for you to achieve X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. And the model was premised largely on a dispositional concept, i.e., this person is incapable of doing X because of Y disposition in their personality. Um, they um, are disorganized. They lack discipline. They uh, are not committed to the project. That is a dispositional analysis. And, and basic psychology says we do that as human beings generally because it's the safest approach. Someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time, treat them as such and protect yourself accordingly. It's all limbic system stuff. And we had to worry about getting clubbed over the head. But as we develop this great thing in the prefrontal cortex and executive function, what we find if we're more disciplined about it, is that most struggles that people face both personally and in work are situational struggles, struggles that they are confronted with as a result of the circumstances they find themselves in life, something chaotic going on at home, an illness, a, a parent who's struggling, uh, money problems, uh, issues with an ability to juggle demands in personal and professional life, um, concerns uh, uh, based on anxiety or imposter syndrome. These these things can be addressed in a far more compassionate and supportive way. So instead of saying you aren't achieving X and it's because you are undisciplined or disorganized, uh, we really spent time digging into the individual circumstances and understanding what was standing in their way, what barriers they were confronting to their own success, and then applying resources to those barriers in order for them to self-actualize. And we found it did two things. One, it got them to understand that we were genuinely invested in their well-being as human beings, uh, not only because it was good for us to do so from a business perspective, but because it was a far better meeting to be in as the person engaging the employee than the one where you're just telling them they're, they're crappy and they need to sort that out. Mm -hmm. So it was better for both parties' souls to engage in this manner. And it, so you had the, the dual wins. It was better for business because they did better. And it was better for all parties because they were connected in their vulnerability and their compassion and their willingness to work through something together. It required huge amounts of trust to be built. It required almost perfect support from management because if we, if someone opened up like that and we said we'd help and then we failed in providing that help, that vulnerability that was provided 
has great costs and it has it needs to be protected assiduously and and with great discipline and if it isn't then trust is eliminated so the work changed the the energy changed the amount of attention to individual realities changed and took on incredibly huge weight but the payoffs were unbelievable because now you've got people who truly understand that you care for them that you want them to be successful that you want them to be successful no matter what it is they're doing for you you just want them to be successful period <laughs> and so you support those things that they're good at and you're able to identify those things that they are not naturally built to do because we're all built differently and no matter how smart you are just because you can do something doesn't mean you should be doing something it might not fit with you and so we would be able to find those things out and and mitigate or eliminate those or or move them so that we unleash this inherent passion and talent and intelligence at, at the thing that it should be directed at and eliminate those things that are holding the person back or slowing them down or making them dislike what it is they're doing generally and and that was step 1 what you're saying sounds so modern right. <laughs> in a very conservative and sort of old school profession. And I'm wondering, first of all, you say the resources that you expended, how did you get from, okay, this is where we are and this is where we want to be? Like, can you give me some com concrete examples of an individual that you worked with and what resources you put to getting them from before to where they are now? I'll give you the most mundane. So organization. People approach organization differently and have different strengths and weaknesses when it comes to organization. And in our profession, organization is essential to find efficiency. And efficiency is essential to not being ground to the nub doing shitty scut work. So how do you take person X and find out how to assist them in becoming more organized and efficient? Well, you have to understand how they approach information how they process it you have to have conversations about do they do they prefer to see something graphically or would they rather have words and text um do they learn orally or by reading do and you you take that and you work with them to find tools and systems that that support how they innately would approach data in a perfect world if they could just blink and the system be created and you you i mean the first the reason you do that is because clearly they're having problems meeting deadlines they're having problems juggling competing projects they're having projects they're having difficulty delivering when they said they were going to be delivering to multiple parties and so we would simply say oh okay well right now you're again this is the most mundane you're using microsoft planner how do you like it what do you like about it what 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 is it missing for you why aren't you engaging it we notice you're not engaging it why aren't you engaging it okay well, here's another tool that's potentially available. Why don't you try that out and see what you think? Do you like that? Would you like reminders provided? And, and really, it is granular, incredibly granular, disciplined, hard work. And, and who's, who's that initiating process. that? Like, are you the one who's connecting yeah. with? So you're doing all of this yourself with all of well, your... So initially, at the very beginning, I was doing it all myself because I was the only one who really sort of uh, uh, had had 
done the work to understand that this work was possible and how to break it down. So we started our original journey towards efficiency by doing process breakdown and iteration. So the whole Lean Sigma thing where you understand every piece of a process and what piece is necessary and what piece isn't and what resource should be allocated to it from everything from intake to the preparation of a case conference brief, A to Z. We spent three years breaking every system in our firm down to its most granular and making it the most efficient. So I took that and I used it, I turned it around and used it as a tool to investigate how people were working and, and find where, where the gaps were, where the problems were, and then tried to apply things to it. And it was all at the beginning, it was all just exploration, hit and miss, works, doesn't work. And I was spending a huge amount of time doing it. I loved it but it wasn't necessarily the the most efficient to have me try to do it for everyone. And when we first started, there weren't that many of everyone for me to do it for. So it was more manageable. But as we grew and developed, we had to obviously have people in-house who could support that. Um, Because when you're 70 people, I can't be figuring out what planning process for each lawyer and clerk is the best for that lawyer and clerk. So we taught those skills the skill of investigating how a person thinks and approaches data, information, scheduling, and workflow, and then came up with a suite of solutions after a bunch of trial and failure and iteration. And now we've got a a handful of different sort of -of out-of-the-box solutions available to deal with most situations. So, I mean, we've got got the, the average human being's who all approach information differently. And then we've got people who are neurodivergent, you know, people with ADHD, people who um, have impairments with respect to how they can process written words versus how they hear it because of a, you know, a learning disability. Um, the, The inherent intelligence and the ability to process the information and do the work is still there at a high, high level, but how they actively hit that work is different. So now we're starting to be able to drill down and hone in on that. And that's just that's just one sort of easy example of, of, of what we do. And then that expands that process, that structure of exploration, understanding, and design expands into any kind of hurdle that we are confronted with with an individual in terms of the work that they do. Hmm. Is that something that you th- would factor into a hiring decision, for example, like when you're looking to expand, you're looking to add more staff, lawyers, clerks, whoever that might be, because of your experience sort of at the back end, do you now start to ask questions, do more of that exploration with each individual as they onboard or even before they onboard? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I will, I'm going to be completely honest and say, maybe we should, but we don't. And the reason we don't is because we look to find people who want to be a part of the exploration. We determine basic competency and we want excellent people. So when I say basic competency, we ascertain that you're, you have the ability if you're properly supported, to intellectually engage in the work at an incredibly high level. And once we've assessed that, we move to, do you want to be on this adventure with us? Are you interested in participating in the exploration, the evolution? Because the practice of law is only part of what we're doing. The rest of it is change. And everybody's got to be good for the change or it won't work. Change is very fragile. Mm-hmm. So that's what we look at. We look at intellectual ability and the interest and, and willingness and desire to be a part of the tribe. Right, right. Yeah. So what are some of the changes afoot? What are some of the things that you have done differently? 
when the pandemic hit, everybody had a choice. They they either pivoted or they stayed the same. And and some that pivoted, you know, found great opportunity, and some that stayed the same managed to weather the storm. And the opposite can be said of of both as well. And we decided pivot um, was the way to go because it's sort of where we were anyways. We we're naturally sort of always on a tipping point of a new change, partially because I'm unsettled as a human being and, and like change. Um, but partially because I think that our business is incredibly antiquated and stodgy and conservative. The joke I always say is if you dug up a lawyer from 200 years ago and walk them into a law firm, aside from the number of women and the fact that computers are being used, they would be relatively comfortable in the processes. <laughs> I don't think that's a great hallmark of a profession. So that's that motivates me all the time. So when the when the pandemic hit and we started seeing people struggle personally as a result of the pandemic, we just said, look it, for now, work as much as you can when you can. You're trying to educate your kids at home. You're trying to figure out how to create bubbles, how to integrate with family. Some people are getting sick. You work when you can, as much or as little as you can, you're still going to get paid. Period. Full stop. Well, there was a 0% abuse rate. People did exactly that. Productivity increased and stress decreased. And so we, we started looking at you know doing some testing and some baseline stuff with surveys. How are you? How's your work? What's most stressful about your work? What's most stressful about home? When you compare those two, where's the majority of the stress coming from? Uh, what's your baseline stress with respect to COVID and its impacts? And we were doing these things sort of weekly and biweekly for a period of time. And it was at that point where I said, I've been reading these crazy qualitative articles, mostly out of the UK and Scandinavia about the four-day work week that, that suggests that there is some magical pixie dust in there that says, if you make people work less, you get more from them. Um, there was no quantitative report or study in place. It was all pie in the sky stuff, but it, it appealed to me logically. And I thought, perhaps partially ironically, given the fact that lawyers sell time, why don't we try the four-day work week right now? The, the firm is, is in flux. It's in, it's, everybody's in crisis. And, and two things you don't do in a crisis is you don't waste it. And you can take advantage of crisis to implement relatively significant change because the background noise is already so loud that changes are more easily adopted than in a steady state. Creating change in steady state isn't even small ones. People get really wigged out because they're happy. Everything's quiet and going along. Even if they're not happy, they're happy. Um, but when th everything's all up in the air, you can do some pretty wild stuff uh, and, and people will be more flexible to it because they just don't have the bandwidth to be rigid. So we said, okay, it, it, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's do some testing. Let's try to roll out a four-day work week. We'll start with a compressed week, which is basically taking five days worth of work compressing the hours into four, giving the fifth day off, continue the pay at 100% and see how it goes. And we'll do that for a period of three months. We'll test during that period. And then we'll see if we can do a non-compressed four-day week, which is you pay people for five days, but they genuinely work four. Like they're not, they're not doing 10-hour days and then taking the fifth day off. They're doing eight-hour days and getting paid for the fifth day and not working it. Um, so we got into it, we did the testing and the testing was incredible right out of the gate, huge upticks in overall well-being, decreases in stress, productivity increase. And then people started getting burned out from the 10 hour days very quickly within weeks. And so we said, okay, we've either got to back up or leap forward. And so, 
because uh, I'm a bit of a lunatic, I said, well, let's just leap forward. The, I, I think we've got to just jump into the the darkness, into the into the new space that's currently unexplored, but for these Scandinavians saying, just do it, you'll be happy. Um, and let's try it, because I believe there's some magic in there. And we tried it, and there was, and there has been. And we were the first law firm and perhaps one of the first professional service businesses in in Canada for sure and perhaps in North America who sell time to reduce their time by 20% and pay their employees 100% and and not only maintain revenues but increase them yeah wow so that was 2020 i take so almost 2 years ago yeah that you implemented that so how do things look 2 years in are you happy you made that move Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's hard. It is hard. Um, it is hard because if you think that the thing that is a four day work week is a rigid construct that is applied like a, like a black and white rule, you are fooling yourself and you're setting yourself up for misery and the machine and it will break. It will break. It cannot be perfectly rigid, largely because lawyers have obligations to meet professional regulations. Um, court dates aren't set by us uh, unilaterally. Uh, big projects come up. And, and so just like we would sometimes have to work six days a week in the before times, sometimes the, the day off for lawyers specifically isn't as, as a day off as it might otherwise be. So we had to understand that it is, it is a philosophy that has to be protected very intensely, i.e. we don't get lazy about it being a four-day work week and it's just sort of tongue-in-cheek, oh yeah, four-day work week, right. We constantly reinforce, no, it is a four-day work week. People should not be putting things in your calendar. There should not be meetings scheduled. If you choose to do work because either you have a court appointment or you want to do something because you feel like doing it because it will engage a passion, then that's fine. But otherwise, the day is, is yours. It should be a day of rest or of doing things in your personal life. So you don't have to do them on the weekend because that is where the benefit is achieved. That is where the well is filled. And if we deny that, uh, then we, then we might not, we might as well not work so hard to do it at all. Now for the, for the allied professionals who support the licensees, it it is far more of a black and white day. They, They still work from time to time because they're committed professionals and they just want to get some stuff off their plate, but far more, it is like a Saturday for them. For the lawyers, for me, for example, today is a Friday. It is my scheduled day off, my fifth day that I do not work. I am doing this because I love doing this. (laughs) I'm doing this because it excites me. I put it in my book on this day for a reason. No one else would put anything in my book but me on a Friday. Um, And I'm also going to have lunch with my dad. (laughs) And I might wash my car. And I'll take my dog for a walk. And maybe I'll take a look at this one agreement that I've been noodling around in my brain for a period of time and want to just start maybe framing out because it's interesting and engaging. It fills my well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing, but it's, it's work. It needs to be constantly nurtured and, and reinforced. Uh, it's imperfect, um, but it is worth it. And, and the outcomes, not only in terms of revenue and productivity, but the attraction and retention of professional staff in a world where that is brutal hmm. uh, has, been, has been such a differentiator for us. It's allowed unprecedented growth. 
Well, I can imagine. And also, I mean, just as you were talking about, well, you know, maybe you'll take a look at that agreement because, you know, it's something of interest. But also when you're free of, you know, the phone and the emails coming in and like the time pressures, I think that generally we can be a lot more creative in our thinking. And as a result, we do much better work. So I hear what you're saying. You don't want it sort of to become that day where you leave things that you weren't able to get to during like the four days, you want it to be something that you're interested in. But I mean, I would like to think that, you know, most of the work that lawyers are doing, they find relatively interesting. So I just see a lot of value in that and saving that time for things that like, you just know, you need to kind of dig into a little bit more. Like I'm going way back to when I worked, um, oh my goodness, for um, the federal government. And they introduced for the first time, what we then called work at home, pol- work at home policy. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was sort of, it was very ad hoc at the time. And I w- always looked forward to that day to just really put everything aside and focus on that one particular, whether it's drafting something, um, researching, whatever it was. And as a result, like I felt so much more satisfied with the work that I was doing. I really felt that I could be bringing my all to it as yeah. opposed to just, you know, oh, got to get this done, get it out. So I'm just so very excited about this. But I also wonder, like, does the whole idea of remote work factor into it, too? Because you mentioned how you know you really pivoted during the pandemic. And yeah. obviously, you have um, a lot of people who were working remotely. Have you continued that as well? Is that part of the work, uh, the four day work week? It is. And I think sort of th- thanks for bringing us back to that. I think I think a really important point is that you you would be hard pressed to achieve this process in an analog environment. If you're heavily relying on paper and in-person stuff, this is going to be really, really hard. Uh, being nimble, flexible, and efficient in process is is sort of baseline for building this other thing on top of it. This is the icing on that cake. And yeah, we, we, we're fully remote. We flipped the switch uh, March 12th, 2020, uh, when it hit. Uh, everyone went home. We turned on remote work. It was it was seamless. Um, no one was wandering into the office to find files and you know ferret them out to to colleagues. We didn't need to do that because we were paperless and continue to be uh, and and really capital P paperless. Not like we're sort of paperless and blah blah blah. We just we hate paper. We scan and shred or return. That's the rule. It's philosophical. It's built into everything we do. And not only were we remote in terms of just the ability to work from home, but we're remote all over the province. And in fact, all over the world. Uh, One of my lawyers is in Brazil presently. Mm. Um, We've got clerks in deep northern Ontario, Thunder Bay, Sudbury. We've got lawyers in Oakville. We've got uh, one in London. They're all over. And so that allows us to draw from a larger marketplace of professionals. Um, and it allows people to work in the kind of work they want to do in the manner they want to do it without having to relocate their family. The only struggle or, or thing that we have to really be conscious of and, and something that we've been figuring out since the end of the pandemic when we're allowed to connect again physically is that connection, that, that, that being in the same, in the presence of another human being and having your energies physically connect. This is where people start sort of checking out on the new age stuff. But mm-hmm. there is a fundamental difference between meeting with someone um, on Zoom 
in terms of the energy exchange and, and the connection to that person as a human being and how you feel about them in your heart than there is when you're sitting in an office together or going out for lunch together. And, and it isn't even about the work. It's about being in the same physical location. And so that's what we've been working on uh, trying to find. Because I don't. you don't need to be together for 99.9% of the work. There's some stuff that's better to be in person together. You, you can maybe get a different kind of creativity. Maybe you're writing stuff on a whiteboard, et cetera. But it's that connection to a person who you work with and a commitment to your colleague that changes when you are breathing the same air as they are. Excuse the weird COVID related example. <laughs> but um, so we're doing it. We're doing it socially. We're we're doing that. The senior partners are doing the grand tour. Where we're wandering around to all the different offices and having lunch with everyone on a relatively regular basis. Um, we are we've created a hackathon where the entire firm is coming together at a camp that we've rented. And we are going to have teams unpack enterprise problems and put a pitch together for a problem that they've identified and the solution that they've generated, followed by music and dancing and eating, and then activities at a camp as you sleep over at the camp. So we're we're finding other ways to connect people as humans while still carrying on the work remotely as professionals. Mm-hmm. Wow. And do you, you have physical offices? We do, but yes. I can tell you that's largely for the client and they don't even really use it. They just want to know it's there. Uh, the community that we're in, the communities that we service are smaller communities where connection to the community and bricks and mortar still matters. And that is really largely why we have as many physical sites as we do. Because it's, you know, there's not, it's not unusual to go into our Goddard office, which is 6,000 square feet built on the old model. And there's like six people in there. It feels sort of cavernous. Uh, beautiful space, wonderful light, great coffee. But a little weird given the model. Yeah. And actually, you raised an interesting point about clients, and it's something we haven't talked about yet at all. But what have the, how have the clients reacted to uh, this four day work week model? Um, They've been universally positive about it because it hasn't impacted their level of service. And that goes back to system design. We we didn't do like a day off, i.e., the office is closed on Wednesday because that just, that would not work. Um, and we are also fortunate enough to have have uh, overlap so that there's more than one person on each team. So on the day where an individual has their their scheduled day off, their their teammate is there to handle any stuff that absolutely needs to be handled that day, which, you know, depending on the practice is more or less corporate stuff that have to absolutely be handled on that day is less frequent than family law stuff that may have to absolutely be handled on that day, depending on the, the, the project you're working on at the time. So we've got that, that coverage and in place. And so the clients get seamless care. Um, and then they get to also feel good about supporting a firm that's doing great things for the people who work there. So it's that ethical consumer feeling really good about what they get and not having to compromise on the product. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, are there any other changes that, um, you know, you'd like to see in the legal profession? Maybe, maybe that's for another day, but I mean, you know, you certainly tackled a few of the big ones, but are there any other changes? I mean, you being the change maker after all in the profession. The billable hour needs to die. There's two reasons why the billable hour needs to die. The billable hour needs to die. First, because the clients are completely disconnected to it. They don't give a shit how many point ones you spent. They want a connection between what you did and the value they received. The value proposition is broken and can can never be fixed 
in a billable hour scenario when dealing with the client. And then in terms of the people who have to do the work, all of the reports and studies basically say the most soul-sucking part of practicing law, and there are a few, is the billable hour. So we, as lawyers and in the profession, think that somehow each thing we do is so unique as to be a unicorn and couldn't possibly be quantified in any way sufficient enough to create certainty of outcomes in terms of the revenue for the firm and certainty of outcomes in terms of the value received by the client. And that is garbage because there are systems far more complex than us that fix prices and deal with a million fluctuations along their supply chain and still manage to get from A to Z and make money and the client feel like they receive value. So mm-hmm. that that's just an old way of thinking and, and a way that needs to change. And back to the, the individual, the biggest indicator of resilience, which is critical in what we do. Resilience is everything in what we do because it's what gets you up in the morning and it allows you to go back to it the next day without having to rely on four hours of Netflix and Merlot to make it through. So the biggest indicator of resilience is a sense of internal locus of control. And if you are driven each month to meet a target, no matter what, in billable hours, that's driven by the work that's flowing to you, establishing a healthy internal locus of control is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So the billable hour is the greatest barrier to a far more healthy and happy profession, a far more healthy and happy relationship with our clients and a, a, an evolution that needs to take place. So what are you doing in your firm uh, to tackle that? We are using the the systems that we have, which are, as I said, very, they've been broken down. We understand them. And we're using the data that we have on each of those things that we do over and over and over again. And the, the costs to do those things, as well as the revenue generated from those things to attempt to model safe spaces for value billing that are actually based on value billing with, with, with a knowable and fixed amount for services mm-hmm. um, as opposed to we're just going to dock it in the background then we'll give them a flat fee. Um, and so that's what we're doing. But it's it's incredible. It is challenging. I mean, the, the Deloitte's of the world are, are you know, and, and other consultancies who do this kind of thing, they're, they're sort of singularly equipped to help with this change. And for whatever reason, it hasn't been a mandate that, that they've really spent a lot of time on. So we're trying to do it internally. Um, and and sort of roll it out safely because the problem is it's risk and it's risk at the most fundamental level. It's risk of cash flow. It's risk of revenue versus expense. Yeah. So we're we're taking pieces, we're unpacking them, we're looking at them, we're looking at a thousand examples of them, and then we're averaging what they cost and what they made, and we're trying to pick numbers and, and test it. And so that's that's what we're doing. It's not very romantic. It's not very sexy, but I think the end result is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm just so happy to hear that something is being done by someone because I mean, everybody I've spoken to says the same thing about the billable hour, but yet the response is, well, that's never going to change. So just excited to hear that sort of change is kind of in the works. So maybe not in, in my lifetime, but hopefully... <laughs> Uh, you know, when my my grandchildren are maybe not hopefully practicing law, but when they're when they're out in the working world, that uh, yeah, there'll be no more billable hour in the legal profession. As we start to sort of wind down, I'm thinking about um, you know other firms looking to implement some of the changes that your firm has made, 
any advice that you have to pass on to them? It is worthwhile work, but it's work and it's disciplined work. So it starts, as I said, the, 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 the process is, is manageable, but big. Step one, take your processes and break them down, lean them, understand them, and record them. If, if it's not written down, it's not a process. Uh, step two, like it or not, you're going to have to engage technology. Um, the, the more, the better you do not have to be leading edge, but being a Luddite or a late adopter is not really a, a, a smart option anymore. If you want to move to this new world and then step three, um, and you can do this, whether you're going to move to a four day work week or not, you can do this right out of the gate. And I'd say that this is tied with step one and step three, treat your people with compassion, be vulnerable, remove the zero sum between management and employee and find a pathway to abundance. Because when you do, you'll have people who are committed to the endeavor in a way that you could never achieve simply by carrot and stick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well said. Wow. Anything that we didn't touch on, uh, Quinn, that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners, sort of in the context generally of, you know, humanizing the practice of law? We are confronted as lawyers um, and I think, again, all professional services with this overwhelming connection to those who we serve, the clients, as well as an overwhelming ability to transmit massive amount of data instantaneously. So we are now suffering uh, from the very thing that has helped us, which is this amazing evolution in technology and the ability to move and utilize data far more easily. We are The pendulum has, has swung, and it's swung to the detriment of the lawyers who are and staff who are providing services in the practice, and we're getting crushed by it. We have to agree that working 24 hours a day and being on 24 hours a day because it looks good to our clients is not sustainable, healthy, or in the end, to the benefit of our clients. We have to collectively agree to put up healthy and reasonable boundaries in the work we do and how much of it we do and how quickly we're able to do it. Um, again, it goes back to that thing. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should be doing something. Mm-hmm. And until we do that, and until the new race to the bottom is being more available to more people more often with the offer of getting things done more quickly, we're going to continue to grind ourselves to the nub, no matter how much support work we do inside the firms. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a look at this and an understanding that if your value proposition is 24-7 access and instantaneous return, it's not a good value proposition. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my concern is that that's coming not just from sort of the law firm culture, but from clients as well. Well, it's driven driven by the clients, but only the law firms can put up the boundaries. And and when they see it as a competitive edge, it's very difficult. Um, so it's not an easy problem to solve, but it is the problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. And definitely worth worth solving, or at least trying to solve, making steps towards solving. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, yeah, 100%. yeah. Yeah. Well, Quinn, thank you so much for uh, this lively discussion and sharing all of the wonderful things that uh, that you're doing at the Ross firm. It's just, uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. You're a change maker, trailblazer, um, and definitely someone to watch. So thank you so much for spending so much time discussing this very important topic with me. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. 
So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L dot com.